Good morning all and thanks Ro. Don't think it went unnoticed that you slipped an extra community news item into the beginning of that reading. Uh, That's you struck off the list of readers forever. Anyway, so um, this morning, yeah, we are going to talk about Jesus' humanity. But before we do, it was a man called Jock. He lived in the west of Scotland and his wife had died many years ago and he brought up his only daughter Isla by himself. Isla grew up, she did well for herself and one day she was offered a new job in London. Jock was delighted and so with his blessing she took the job down in London. She met a man called Rob, they became boyfriend, girlfriend and soon husband and wife and a few years later little Finley came along. Jock was delighted. He was obsessed with his first grandchild. He got the overnight sleeper regularly to London to go and see him. And whenever she could take time off work, Isla brought Finlay up to Scotland to see Jock. Now, Jock used to spend every Christmas down in London with Rob and with Isla. And this Christmas, he was particularly excited. He hadn't been well in the autumn and so hadn't been able to make it down to London to see them. And Isla's work had got really busy, so she hadn't been able to bring Finley up to see Jock. So he was really excited. He hardly slept the night before like a kid. He was super early to the bus stop. He was super early to the train station. Then eventually he caught the overnight sleeper down to Euston. Got the train down to Euston. Got the underground across London. Got another bus in London outside the underground station. And finally, finally he was at his daughter's flat. He buzzed the intercom. Eventually, Isla answers, Dad, great, Um, I've left the front door open. Can you just bring yourself in? Because I've just got a million things on. Rob's parents are coming around for a meal tonight, and I'm so behind with the cooking, because I've been looking after Finley all day. Jock ran up the stairs, belying his years. He walked in through the front door, and as he opened the front door, he could see Finley in the playpen, screaming and crying. But as soon as Finley heard the door open, he turned around, he saw his grandfather, and he stopped crying immediately. He lifted out his arms and he shouted, Grandad, Grandad, Grandad. And Jock turned to Finley and he held out his arms and he said, Finley, what are you doing in that playpen? Let's get you out of there. And he ran towards the playpen. And as he ran, arms outstretched, His daughter screamed from the kitchen, Dad, I know you're really excited, but can you just leave him in there? He's been a nightmare today. I'm so behind with all of this cooking. If you get him out of the playpen, then I'm never going to get everything done on time. Jock's standing there, arms out. He doesn't know what to do. He loves his grandson. He's been excited to see him. But equally, he loves his daughter. And he knows what it's like to try and do all of these things. He remembers those times. So he's stuck. So what does he do? He stands there for a second and then he puts his arms down. Finley looks sad. Finley puts his arms down. He looks like he's about to start crying again. And then Jock walks towards him. He climbs over the walls of the playpen. He squeezes himself uncomfortably in between all the toys and he sits down with Finley. Ro read to us from the message version of the first chapter of John and she read these words to us from verse 14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighbourhood. 
This morning we're looking at Jesus' humanity, and that's what this morning is all about. Jesus' humanity is God climbing over the walls of the playpen. It's God moving into the neighborhood. But before we look at all that, uh, back to the Apostles' Creed. This is, as Felicity said, the third in our series on the Apostles' Creed, which for the uninitiated, uninitiated is a summary of Christian doctrine written in the first few centuries. Um, I'm not going to go into the detail of what it is, because Steve did a great job of covering that in the first of these series, and it is, as Flick said, available on the podcast. If it is your first time here, or if you missed those weeks before, I really would recommend that you go back and listen to the podcast. So Steve did the intro. He also covered this bit. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. And then Jill and I are looking at the second section. Last week, Jill looked at Jesus' divinity through the context of this line. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And if you missed Jill's talk from last week, then again, you really should go back and listen to it on the podcast. And not just for the bit where Jill forgets what decade she's in and says that she's going to repeat something for the benefit of the tape. Um, This morning, I am looking at this next section, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Um, specifically looking at the concept of Jesus's humanity, which is more interesting than it sounds, I promise you, the fact that Jesus was an actual human being. Now, my section has to be understood in the context of Jill's talk from last week as a Christian church at Oasis Church Waterloo. We believe in a God who is three in one father or parent son and holy spirit and unfortunately i really haven't got time to go into what all of that means but we might get onto some of it later on in this series and we believe in a god who is through jesus both fully god and fully human now that's a fairly conventional thing to say in a christian church now isn't it it's a fairly normal exploration of what christians believe i'm sure you've probably heard people say things like that over and over again if you've been part of a church for a long time but in saying we believe in a god who is through jesus fully god and fully human i am saying something which in the early years of the church was the cause of a fair few arguments So, here's a 90-second whistle-stop tour of about 300 years of history around the development of Christology, which means the doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ, or put more simply, the study of Jesus. Right, we've got 90 seconds on the clock. Are we ready? Let's go. We start in the second century AD with the Gnosticists who believed that Jesus was only divine and not really human, that he wasn't really flesh and blood and didn't really suffer and die. Now, the idea of a Jesus who wasn't really human was popular throughout the Greek world thanks to Plato, who believed that the matter and the body were intrinsically bad. So the idea that in Christ, God became flesh and physically suffered went completely against the grain. We jump from Gnosticism to Nestorianism. This one's a bit later in the fourth and fifth century, and this talk that Jesus had two complete natures, one divine and one human. So, for example, Mary was the mother of Jesus, but not the mother of God. Then there's Arian, who taught that a divine being couldn't suffer and die. So, although he agreed that Jesus was the unique revelation of God, he didn't believe that Jesus could be God. Then there was Athanasius, who stood up to Arian and said, no, you're wrong. God is Father, 
Son, Holy Spirit. And Jesus is both part of this divine trinity and he's fully human. There was a big debate about all of this. There were two major schools of Christology which emerged, one in Alexandria and one in Antioch. They all had different takes on all this kind of stuff. And then finally, at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, it was agreed once and for all that Jesus was fully divine, fully human, two natures in one person, without confusion or change, separation or division. The end. <laughs> um, if you are interested in this kind of thing but it's all new to you then I really recommend this book uh, by a guy called Stephen Tompkins Short History of Christianity it's a bit old now but um, it is a great introduction to all this kind of stuff written really simply um, yeah it's fantastic however I appreciate that there, there might just be one or two of you this morning who unbelievably are not that interested in 2,000 year old pretty abstract theological concepts I'm sure there probably only are one or two maybe three or four of you but I'm sure there are probably some some of you may even be sitting there thinking, what in the world does this have to do with my life? Well, I think it comes back to the verse that I mentioned earlier, verse 14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Or as the NIV puts it, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This word dwelling or neighborhood is important. Literally translated, it would be God pitched his tent among us. And the word that's used in Hebrew translations, Mishkan, has its roots in the word Shekinah, which reveals to the revealed glory of God. Just a quick aside here before we look at this in any more depth. Interestingly, Shekinah is a feminine word. Obviously, English doesn't have masculine and feminine words, but lots of other languages, including Hebrew, does. And in Judaism, um, the word Shekinah represents God as the divine feminine, God's classically feminine attributes. We really haven't got time to go down this route this morning, but there are many feminists, male and female, who have struggled over the years with the idea of Jesus being male and taking on male characteristics. How can a man be the saviour of woman? But in response, I really like this quote from a guy called Daniel Migliori. The New Testament sees the full humanity of Jesus, not in maleness, but in his shocking forgiveness of sinners, his solidarity with the poor, his teaching and enactment of the coming kingdom of God, for which there is no gender. But back to Shekinah, the same word is also used in the Old Testament where it's translated um, as tabernacle or tent of meeting. Uh, listen to this from Exodus chapter 33. Moses used to take the tent and set it up outside the camp some distance away. He called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who sought God would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. It went like this. When Moses would go to the tent, all the people would stand at attention. Each man would take his position at the entrance to his tent with his eyes on Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud descended to the entrance of the tent and God spoke with Moses. All the people would see the pillar of cloud at the entrance to the tent, stand at attention, and then bow down in worship. Each man 
at the entrance to his tent. The tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was where the glory of God was revealed, Shekinah, where the glory of God dwelt before the temple was built in Jerusalem. Now the readers, the first readers of this Gospel of John, the first people who would have heard these stories, would have identified this, identified this word immediately. What John was saying was that where God once dwelt in a tent, where only the holiest of holies were able to go and access God. Now he was a human being, exactly like us, and living among us. At the very beginning of the Gospel of John, these words would have been revolutionary. Whereas in the Old Testament, God's people had thought of God as only being accessible to the most holiest, the most important. Now it's all changed. God has moved into the neighborhood and is accessible to all. Well, what does this mean to us? There are a few things, I think. I think the first is the obvious one, and that's how much this theology has shaped and impacted the work that we do at Oasis. The idea of moving into the neighborhood, of getting stuck in, um, and working to show the kingdom of God all around in the day-to-day reality of life lived in community. That's an idea that's obviously very clearly at the heart of what we're trying to do here, isn't it? Jesus's humanity roots us into a Christianity that is practical and not just spiritual. It's about hands and feet on the ground, getting your hands dirty, working with people. And I think Jesus's humanity also impacts our humanity We believe in a God who became human, had emotions, suffered in the way that we suffer. Just a couple of examples of this. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus sees a funeral procession where a woman's only son is being carried out for burial and he shows compassion. In verse 13, he says, his heart broke for this woman. Jesus was also capable of anger in a probably more well-known story in John chapter 2. He walks into the outer courts of the temple in Jerusalem and he sees what are in effect modern-day loan sharks, I guess. And he throws over the table, angry that extortion is taking place in what should be a holy place. One more that we look at this morning, Jesus loved One of the interesting things about this is that there are so many examples I could pull out of the Gospels where Jesus loved somebody. But the Gospels don't just say that he loved those that you would expect him to love. He loved a lot of others too. There's a story in Mark chapter 10 about a rich young ruler who asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus looks at the rich young man and he says, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. A verse in Mark chapter 10 says, The man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, I think the interesting thing is that when I read that story, sometimes I can think, yeah, stick it to the rich man who doesn't want to help out the poor people. Um, And I don't really think that the rich young ruler comes off in such a great light. But sometimes you read it again and then you read verse 21 where it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And I realize that, yet again, Jesus' humanity shows a side of my humanity which needs a lot of work. 
I think that the experience Jesus has of emotions can help us in so many ways. What does it matter that Jesus was human? Well, I think that Jesus can relate to us in our emotions and in our struggles because he also went through them. Another well-known story, at the Mount of Olives after the Last Supper, Jesus went off on his own to pray. And Luke 22 says, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus struggled. Jesus can be present in our struggles because he struggled. Back to Daniel Migliore, who says, if Christ does not enter into solidarity with the hell of human condition, we, may, we remain without deliverance and without hope. If Christ is able to offer hope to humans, he must have entered into the hell of human condition. Because let's be honest, life can be tough, can't it? In the last six months, I've gone to two funerals of family members, one of whom I was particularly close to. And my grandmother is currently in hospital. I, I obviously don't say that for sympathy. I know that we've all got similar stories, haven't we? We've all got struggles. And I'm sure that there are lots of you here this morning whose struggles are far greater than mine. Life can be tough, can't it? But the thing is, and I, I don't say this glibly, the thing is that I believe in a God who empathizes with me, who is with me in the struggle and can be with me in the struggle because he also suffered the same things. Some verses from John chapter 11. A man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. The sisters sent word to Jesus, Master, the one you love so very much is sick. Lazarus dies and a few days later, Jesus gets back to Jerusalem. Jesus, as many of you will know, um, raises Lazarus from the dead. But the bit in the story that's sometimes overlooked is Jesus' reactions when he arrives at Lazarus' house. In the message, verse 33 says that a deep anger welled up within Jesus. Human emotion. Who hasn't felt anger when a friend has died too young? And then in verse 35, we see one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. Now, the chapters and verses were added to the Bible in the 16th century by Bible compilers. And one of the reasons why these two words are given the importance of a verse on their own is because they wanted to stress the importance of this reaction. Jesus wept. Even knowing that he was fully divine and therefore fully capable of raising Lazarus from the dead. Even though he knew what was to come, Jesus wept. Jesus showed the same emotion that we show when our friends die. Jesus can be with me in the struggle because he struggled. In his book, Unapologetic, Francis Spufford talks about the fact that the other two monotheistic religions, Islam and Judaism, they think that giving God a human body messes with holiness 
Because holy means set apart or kept apart. And how, therefore, can God be holy if he's also in the same world as us? Francis Bufford says that Christianity disagrees because the God-man mixture in Jesus brings us something more precious than conceptual purity. Hope in trouble, consolation in suffering, help in anguish. That's what I think Jesus' humanity is all about. Hope in trouble, consolation in suffering, help in anguish. Like I said earlier, I actually quite enjoy all that history stuff, the stuff that I started talking about. I enjoy reading about uh, theories of Christology and all that stuff. I enjoy reading about the arguments had by our predecessors who, to be honest, were all just trying to work it out for themselves. But beyond all of that stuff, all of that theoretical stuff, there's a straightforward truth, I think, that Jesus' humanity roots us in a Christianity that isn't just theoretical, that isn't just spiritual, but is completely practical. It calls us to get our hands dirty, to climb into the playpen, to move into the neighborhood, to sit alongside the broken and say, me too, me too. And for some of us today, that might be our response to this. Some of us might be in that place where we're ready to climb into the playpen, where we're ready to move into the neighborhood, being Jesus' hands and feet to those around us. But just as we end, I'd like to focus on the rest of us, the ones who may be in that place where what we need is to remind ourselves that Jesus came into this world and experience the range of emotions that you're currently going through this morning. So that when you get yourself out of bed on a Sunday morning and you manage to drag yourself here for 11 o'clock, when you're really not feeling about it, you're really not feeling like it, you can know that you follow a God who says, me too, me too. I've been there. I've been through that. I understand what you're going through. Jesus' humanity, Jesus' struggle is for you. Hope in trouble, consolation in suffering, help in anguish. That's all I'm going to say this morning. We're going to end with a poem. And after we do, we'll have a minute of silence before I pray to close. The poem's called Broken Open. If your heart yearns for a more it doesn't know, if you've suffered blow after blow and can barely dare to lift your head, if you've ever wished you'd rather been, if you've bled or tried to bind a wound, if you've cried then tied a knot to choke the flow of hope before it can open up a way to disappoint you again and leave you broken, then this is for you. If you've longed, if you've wronged, if you choke on the words to your favorite song, if you need a doctor or you're beyond medical help, then come. If you're cracked, if you're splintered, if your winter is just too long, if this winter is just too long, but the thought of spring is terrifying, then come. 
Because Jesus came for the broken brother and sister, the ache, the pain, and the blister, the wrong decision, the open wound, the blurred vision, the won't ever hope again. Jesus came for the insane, the unfulfilled, the searching, the street child, the tramp, and the urchin, the poor little rich girl snorting coke and cursing, and the man who sold it to her. Jesus came for those nursing a need, nursing a drink, out of control, on the blink, on the brink, falling overboard and about to, sobbing at the kitchen sink. Jesus came for those the world drives mad, for the bad, yes, the bad. Jesus came for the bad, so if that's never been you, then fine, just go, because Jesus didn't come for the well, the swell, the hell, I've got everything I need, the nothing's lacking, the non-cracking up. He's not interested in courting the sorted. He came to fill the cup of the thirsty, the worst, the broken, the burst open. Jesus came for the sick, the packed up, the cracked up, the smashed, hopes dashed and the picked on. The meek, the weak, the stuttering, those who blush when they speak and the walked out on. Jesus came for the left behind, for the cheats and the cheated, the ones who crossed the line and the ones who still don't know where to begin. Jesus came for the people who know how it feels when you say sin, for the broken to open, to break for those who choke, for the people who don't have everything we need. For the ones who know, we need hope.